This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 393rd episode, we have a quick overview of the six dinosaur theme parks and resorts in the Jurassic Park franchise. Since Dominion's coming out, how could we not talk about Jurassic Park? As well as our dinosaur of the day, Scorpius Rex. Yes, because we're getting so close to Dominion. It is a make-believe dinosaur. The hybrid dinosaur, yes. <laughs> a make-believe hybrid dinosaur. In Jurassic World. Why it ends in Rex, because it seems like whenever anybody makes up a dinosaur, they make it something Rex. But Tyrannosaurus Rex was real. True. Yeah. Occasionally it's real. But I think it fits. Mm-hmm. We also have an interview with Glenn McIntosh, who has worked on multiple Jurassic Park and Jurassic World movies. But before we get into all of that, as always, we'd like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank... Randy and Squim, Trent Carbajal, Ermel, Jeff, Amato Titan, Cameron, Albertosaurus, Joaquin, Stefan, and Bill Jago. Thank you so much for being part of our dinosaur community, and we hope that you and all our other patrons enjoy our next couple of episodes, which are going to be Jurassic Park and Jurassic World themed. Yep. Yeah, next week we'll be doing a review of the movie, which hopefully we'll be able to see by then. <laughs> <laughs> As promised, our quick news item is that there are six dinosaur theme parks and resorts in the Jurassic Park franchise, which I had no idea there were that many. There's a lot. Screen Rant recently explained all of them, and they said that John Hammond's dream was to have a franchise, which makes sense because I think in some ways he might have been based on Walt Disney, who also wanted a franchise and got it. So the, can I guess which ones there are? Sure. So there's the original Jurassic Park on Isla Nublar. Mm-hmm. There's the one in San Diego. Yeah, good memory. There's, I don't think there's a theme park on Isla Sorna. No. And then there's, but there was the Jurassic World one that they created on the original Isla Nublar. Yes. So you've got half of them. I can't think of any others. They get they get pretty obscure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so like you mentioned, there was Jurassic Park in San Diego, and I'm just going, this is kind of in chronological order. That was the original site for where Hammond wanted to start, and it was supposed to be more of a traditional zoo, and it was nearly completed, but then Hammond changed his mind and moved it to Isla Nublar. Mm, okay. And we did get to see some of it and the amphitheater in the Lost World Jurassic Park, but Mm -hmm. it's unclear what happened to this site afterwards. Yeah. Then there's Jurassic Park, the main event. We all know what happened to there. (laughs) Darn Nedry 
messing things up. Yeah, it was all Medri's fault. Yeah. Everything would have been perfectly fine if it wasn't for him. (laughs) 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 Then the new ones, there's Jurassic Park Europe and Jurassic Park Japan that were meant to be sister parks, like how there are sister parks to Disneyland. And when is that ever mentioned? It is... Well, the plan was to start construction once the original Jurassic Park opened and that and if it was a success, it was meant to be a success. And Jurassic Park Europe was in a boardroom scene in the movie. So it's very a very brief appearance. Okay. And uh, according to Screen Rant, it would have been in Portugal somewhere. And there's not much mentioned about Jurassic Park Japan other than uh, I guess there was a plan at some point. Then there's Jurassic Park Isla Aventura, where Hammond lamented in the movie he should have built his park in Florida. (laughs) You see more parallels with Disneyland here, (laughs) Disney World. It's part of an alternate history of Jurassic Park, where Jurassic Park, the original, failed, but the park got a second chance at Jurassic Park Isla Aventura, somewhere near Orlando, Florida. And there was a special apparently from the late 90s that explained the backstory and construction, but it's unclear if this park still exists or if it was abandoned. And also, it sounds like it was part of an alternate history, so it's a bit complicated. Alternate history? I've never heard of the alternate history of Jurassic Park before. Me either. That could be why you and I were only familiar with three of the six theme parks. Because those are the only three that actually are anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then the last one, like you mentioned, Jurassic World, the successor to Jurassic Park, and we also know what happened there. And all those events led up to Dominion, which is coming out soon. I thought maybe you were going to mention the Lockwood Estate as one of the parks, sort of. Kind of, but that one wasn't really open to visitors. No, no. Or meant to be. But they had all the people that came in to buy the dinosaurs that was sort of visitors. Yeah, but it's not the same. That's true. wasn't a theme park, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And not a resort either. And now we're going to get on to our interview with Glenn McIntosh. But of course, as always, we have an extended version of this interview. So if you're a patron, make sure to check that out in your premium content feed. We're here today with Glenn McIntosh, who's been in film and animation for 30 years. And he grew up in Calgary, Canada. He's lived all over the world as an artist, as a 2D and 3D animator, as well as a concept and storyboard designer. He's worked on a number of films, including Jurassic Park 3 as supervisor for the Raptors and lead animator for the battle between Spinosaurus and T-Rex, Jurassic World as animation supervisor, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom as animation director, and Jurassic World Battle at Big Rock, and Jurassic World Dominion as storyboard designer. And he's lectured on dinosaur movement and locomotion at many conferences, schools, and museums. Thank you so much for joining us, Glenn. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Thanks. And for our listeners, if his name sounds familiar... We last had him on our show in episode 189, and you might have also seen him in our recent live stream on our YouTube channel, where he very generously showed us his dinosaur art collection. And of course, you can learn more about it at artofglennmackintosh.com. So I think last time we spoke, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom hadn't come out yet. So I don't think you could tell us too much detail about that movie. But now it's out. Yeah, it's been out for a while now. Can you tell us more? (laughs) (laughs) What would you like to know? Whereas Jurassic World was filmed in Hawaii and New Orleans, 
Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was filmed at Pinewood Studios in uh, just outside uh, London. So it was an amazing experience to be in uh, London for the, in the summer of uh, 20, 2018. I guess it was sort of been summer of 2017. I was in London for a few months being on set and working with the cast and crew. And then afterwards, uh, working with the team in, in post-production to help create some specific sequences, specifically the like blue coming out and meeting Chris Pratt's character again, and then being tranquilized. And then, of course, the volcano, the destruction of the island, and the dino stampede. My team in Vancouver did that, which I thought they did a fantastic job. That was a really cool scene. Yeah, basically all the big dinosaur moments. <laughs> <laughs> and what was great was that from Jurassic World and like one of the tasks I gave the animators coming on to the show in Jurassic World was to go on to YouTube and find a piece of footage of what a real animal did and match that movement with specific dinosaurs. And sometimes the scenes were only two seconds long and sometimes they were, you know, 20 seconds long. But we sort of broke it up into like small, mid-size and large dinosaurs. So the small dinosaurs we looked at ostriches and emus and cassowaries, like any sort of bipedal birds, large birds. Ostriches are the fastest bipedal animals on the, the planet currently. They can get up to around 45, 50 miles an hour if they're being chased by a lion. But they were perfect for the raptors mm -hmm. and the gallimimuses. And then our medium-sized dinosaurs, which we sort of referred to as sort of like the ankylosaurs, the ceratopsians, like triceratops, and stegosaurus, we looked at rhinos. Because of their, you know, thick builds and thick bodies and pillar-like legs and, you know, sort of, especially with triceratops, like the thick heads, even like the horn ornamentation. And then for the big dinosaurs, we looked at elephants and used their body movements and then just added the, the necks and the tails because the bodies themselves were actually very similar to that of an elephant. And we never had, if you look at an elephant, an elephant actually can't run because of how, how heavy it is but it can walk very, very fast. So by virtue of its scale, mm -hmm. it can move at like 17 to 20 miles an hour, but it's just walking very fast because it can't get all four legs off the ground at the same time. So we made a point of referencing that in the stampede. So when you see the brachiosaurus and the apatosaurus, they're walking very fast like elephants. And I know that Juan Antonio Biona, the director of Fallen Kingdom, was a little concerned that wouldn't feel intense enough. But what you do is you put the camera right down at eye level and you have these gigantic dinosaurs passing over you. And then you add camera shake and a lot of other little tricks of the movie trade to make it feel more uh, visually dynamic. So that the equivalent of like, you know, a herd of elephants running by you, it would be scary. So like that was his one concern is that, you know, making sure that they feel fast enough. But we wanted to make sure that it uh, we retained the physics of what a real animal could do and then applied that to the sauropods. Yeah, that was really cool. Did you have a favorite dinosaur that to animate or that you chose to be included in that section? There were so many. What was really interesting was that the Stegosaurus, by virtue of the fact that typically, like, if you have a four-legged, like, quadruped animal, the forelimbs are equal in length to the, the hind limbs. But you don't have that with Stegosaurus. It's a crazy design to it. You know, that once again, Mother Nature creating something that's just so un <laughs> unique and unreal. And the forelimbs were very short and the back limbs were very long. So trying to incorporate the rhino run into that was very tricky. But luckily, the animation team was just 
I was very lucky to work with such a, a talented group of artists. They were able to make it happen. But yeah, initially it was trying to figure out how to assign a rhino run to a stegosaurus was uh, one of the trickiest aspects. Not as <laughs> tricky with the ankylosaurs or the triceratopses because by virtue of their design, their limbs were all equal in length, which is what we want. Yeah, that makes sense. I could see how, especially those types of animals where there isn't like a modern analog, like with a sauropod, it's kind of like an elephant, but with a way longer neck and a way longer tail. Yeah. But then you something like a stegosaurus. What am I even going to compare this? So that was also a rhino that you used for the stegosaurus more or less? Yeah. And then what was fun was to be able to animate the plates on top of the stegosaurus. And how much like shutter they would have in them, you know, like where their attachment point would be. And then assuming that, you know, the largest plates would be three or four feet long and like how much would they jiggle and implied like the weight that was being applied to them, sort of the, the impact tremors that would run up through the skin and the muscles. And then like, you know, how much would the thagomizer shake back and forth as their, you know, the tail spikes as they're running. And what was so interesting was that I did one of my presentations at this paleontological review in San Francisco and a paleontologist came up to me after showing some of examples of the run cycles and I showed him the stegosaurus run cycle. And he's like, I could do an entire paper on just how you have those plates shaking. It wasn't based on anything other than <laughs> the animators and the sim artists applying, you know, a simulation to the plates and then the animator, you know, initially doing a, a, some movement and then the sim artists applying even more movement to it. And then sometimes it would be too broad and we'd have to tone that down, but you'd sort of arrive at a, at a point where you're like, yeah, that feels about right. And then you show it to a scientist and they get all excited because they typically don't have access to the technology that we do as far as applying simulations or, or animation to these types of movements. It was uh, really interesting and exciting to see them get excited looking at our animation that we just kind of based off of what we thought it might move like. Yeah, that's really cool. And really a great example of how art and science work together. Yeah, absolutely. And like sort of the ultimate goal, it may not be exactly how they would have moved, but the end goal is, is, you know, like no one in obviously has ever seen a living dinosaur aside from the billions of birds that surround us every day. If you think of an animal that big, you've been to, a, most people have been to a zoo. They've watched the National Geographic documentaries. They know how a, a rhino moves. They know how an elephant moves. It, it feels intrinsically you know, real to them. So if you assign those movements to the dinosaurs, it's an unreal creature that they've never seen before. But because it's moving in a way that feels relatable and feels like, oh, that reminds me of an elephant or oh, that reminds me of a rhino, it feels real. So it may not be exactly how they would have moved, but because we're assigning movement that feels familiar, it makes the animation feel real. Awesome. Did you want to talk any more about Fallen Kingdom? It was invaluable to be on set and uh, work with uh, Chris and Bryce and the other actors. It's always fun working with the stunt people, working with Neil Scanlon and his team who created the animatronics. They just did an incredible job with those, like the live action blue on the operating table. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to be part of that. I was under the table operating the nostrils. <laughs> which was just a trigger, it, which is like a wire looped around the foam latex, which would open and close the nostrils. And then there were four other operators under the table operating various parts of blue that were then ultimately digitally erased. And it was amazing. And what was so fun was that Bryce brought her daughter onto the set and, you know, the blue started, you know, acting up. And she was like, I'm not going near that thing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it looked genuinely real and scary. So to be able to combine sort of the digital effects, 
it's like a lot of times there's a lot of mixing and matching going on. And I would imagine even more so uh, with Dominion where you got a practical Raptor on the table, but then you might add like a CG tail to get an extra whip out of it. Or in other parts, you might keep the tail and just digitally erase the rod that was operating the tail. So as much as possible in each shot, you're mixing and matching the practical and the real so that you're the audience isn't quite too in on exactly how it was done, which is always the goal. That's amazing, too, the amount of details that go into it. Like, I don't know if I notice Blue's nostrils specifically moving. Yeah, I think it's the sort of thing you would notice if it wasn't there. One of the other things that I asked for, uh, Henrik Svensson, who did the incredible paint jobs on uh, not only the full-sized dinosaurs, but also the maquettes that we used for reference and painted a lot of the pieces in my collection. The underside of the raptor's feet were perfectly clean. And so I asked him to get some fullers, what's called fullers earth, which is a really soft and fine dirt material. And he brushed that onto the underside of the feet of blue. Because of course, if you grab an ostrich out of the wild, it's not going to be perfectly clean. It's going to be <laughs> going to have dusty feet. We dusted up the undersides of the feet and just to make it look like it was an animal that had, you know, if you put more of the environment onto the animal, that's just another way to make it feel more real. I know that that was something we, like I really pushed hard for in the, the final dino fight in uh, Jurassic World and a lot of my concept art, I had never really seen like a lot of the environment like on these animals. And I think maybe my drawings had too much stuff on them, but I had them, you know, if they're fighting in a city street, you know, there's going to be concrete and rubble and rebar and blood and tar and glass and all sorts of stuff covering them. And if you look at the final shot, you'll see in the Indominus, it's not only covered in blood, but there's like bits of rebar sticking out of its uh, shoulder. So that was really fun to see because I just, I'd never seen that on, on any of the previous dinosaurs, you know, like if it's, yeah. if it's going to go under, you know, if it's going to be in a dusty environment, make sure to get the dust on that creature. It was such an epic fight that by the end of it, there should be blood on both of them. <laughs> if you look real closely, the T-Rex's one arm is sort of hanging down. So to sort of imply either, you know, maybe it got broken or it got injured and it had blood running down its neck as well. Just you know, one of the aspects of Jurassic Park 3 I would have loved to emphasize more was just putting more debris on the animals as they battled each other and just got covered in stuff. If you look on YouTube of like lions fighting each other, you know, they're just kicking up lots of dirt, lots of grass. And now imagine those same two animals going at it, but they each weigh eight tons. <laughs> and now put them in an environment, you know, where they're not supposed to be, which is a main street where they don't fit. And they're going to mm -hmm. be smashing and knocking into stuff. And so that was one of the goals. And Tim Alexander, the visual effects supervisor, and Colin Trevorrow, the director, were on board with that. And they did a fantastic job doing like all of the lighting and technical direction to get all that stuff on there, which I thought looked incredible. Yeah. yeah. I guess that is a lot of what digital design for movies is, right? It's like making it look not too perfect because CGI has a tendency to make things look pristine and unnatural in that way. Absolutely. Is there anything else you add besides like the environment and injuries that you thought were interesting? There's a lot of tricks that you do to place them in the environment and a lot of things that are almost imperceptible to the viewer. But if you take them out, you notice if they're not there. And one thing I can think of is the scene where the T-Rex comes out and like stomps on one of the Spinosaur fossils to like arrive at Main Street and face off against the Indominus Rex. Like we had a real bone in that main street environment. So we knew because Collins very specifically wanted that to be crushed. 
when it crushes the bone, that's a simulation. But the other thing is, is that when the Rex is like stomping its feet, well, number one, it's, it's me in the mocap suit. <laughs> and then you give it to an incredibly talented animator that, you know, globally tilts the body forward because of course, dinosaurs and humans stand very differently and, you know, globally like bent the legs to make it feel more heavy. And then adding impact tremors going up through the legs and the hawk and the calf muscles, but you're adding camera shake. Because if a cameraman was really there 10 feet away from that and an eight-ton animal stomped its foot down, the camera would shake. So on each foot stomp, there's a very subtle camera shake going on. And that's the sort of thing, like, if you take that camera shake out, it doesn't feel like you're in that shot. You know, just we were constantly thinking to ourselves, like, if a National Geographic insane cameraman was trying to capture this event, <laughs> like, what would he actually see and what would he actually be able to record well of course the ground would shake and which would ultimately uh, shake the camera so if you also notice if you ever look at a nature documentary like a lot of these animals are moving so fast the cameraman's trying to keep up with the action and so what we would do is have the cameraman lag the action a little bit so the cameraman isn't immediately aware of what's going to happen because it's a wild animal and he doesn't know what it's going to do next so by having the camera a little bit behind what the Rex or Indominus Rex is going to do, it just makes it feel a little bit more real. Like, oh, oh, I got to I gotta pan left. Oh, I got to pan right. Oh, I got to tilt up. And it's he's just always like frantically trying to frame the action. And it's okay if the action isn't perfectly framed. Like some of the criticism of uh, the Jurassic World movies is the use of the aspect ratio, which is 235 instead of 185 to capture a lot of the tall dinosaurs. It doesn't really bother me. Part of the reason being that, you know, if you had a real camera with a 235 aspect ratio, you wouldn't be able to frame a brachiosaur unless you backed up, you know, half a mile. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're only able to frame part of the animal, that's okay because, you know, the cameraman is then trying to frame the action in a way that they would try and do if, if it was really there. Like if a giraffe was five feet in front of you, what would you try and frame up on? So in that respect as well, you're trying to create camera work that you would see in a real environment to make it feel more real as well. Yeah. And then there there are those scenes, or the only scene I can think of where you can see the whole sauropod is when it's on that bridge and it's getting engulfed in flame, basically. Yeah. And then you're pretty far away. Since you have that distance, yeah, it's like the whole screen is mostly fire. And yeah. It's just a, a little bit of sauropod. I'm endlessly amazed by how emotional people got from that scene. Like people genuinely cried when that scene happened because it's sort of harkens back to the uh, original film when it rises up on two legs and sort of it's it makes you realize that like the wonder and majesty of seeing a living dinosaur and then now you're seeing you know the the death of that dinosaur in the same way which is it's supposed to be tragic it's supposed to realize you know you know how sad it is what's happening to these animals but that specific scene was based on a very specific piece of artwork that was done months before and they matched it exactly. It was just what Juan Antonio Bayona and David Vickery and his visual effects team did was was beautiful, the way they were able to match exactly what was in the uh, the 2D artwork. I definitely teared up at that scene. Yeah. Was, yeah, I thought it was really well done. Yeah, for sure. I, and I was sad to see it, but it was a beautiful image. It was, absolutely. So moving forward in the franchise, you did the storyboard for Battle at Big Rock. What was that like? That was so much fun. Colin called me and asked if I would like to be involved in, you know, like helping to block out the poses for the dinosaurs. And I was so honored to have him call me. So it was uh, really fun to sort of plan out the actions 
of what they could potentially be doing. What would a baby ceratopsian be doing? What would the mother be doing? And then the bull ceratopsian shows up. And I think it's a nesudoceratops to take on the allosaurus. How do we reveal the allosaurus? What do we see? And it was, I think, a, a fascinating example of changing the lighting from what you typically saw in a Jurassic movie. The lighting is very much, you know, it's, it's not what you would think of as like uh, classic cinematography where you're framing the animal to be beautifully lit. It was very much like, you know, this is what a car headlight would illuminate <laughs> and the rest is in shadow and just let it fall into shadow. What I was constantly looking at for inspiration was Apocalypse Now. And there's a cinematographer by the name of Vittorio Storaro who just, he's incredible. He paints with light. And you'll see that when you watch Apocalypse Now, you'll see like soldiers silhouetted against explosions, the Dolong Bridge sequence. You'll see like paths of these uh, shards of light that illuminate just certain pools to determine like the depth of a shot. And that was very much at play if you watch Battle at Big Rock. Sometimes the dinosaurs are completely silhouetted against like the, the campfire or the headlights. It was basically like, you know, let's set up a campsite and put these RVs around it. And then imagine two, you know, like gigantic dinosaurs fighting around it. Like, what would you actually see? And I think it helped to inform a lot of what we're going to see in Dominion. I, I can't say for sure, but from what I've seen from the, the prologue that I storyboarded, I think it benefits greatly from it because it, it feels even more real because it's like, this is what the cameraman would be able to capture in this environment and, you know, with, with those, the limitations of those lights. It's sort of asking everyone to be, be creative with, you know, okay, like you, let's say you only have these lights. Now, what would you see? And then artistically mm -hmm. directing it in a way where you're like, okay, well, let's silhouette the allosaurus head as it snaps the baby. And how do we still make it dramatic and clear to the audience what's going on, but also not too presentational, if that makes sense. Yeah. Complicated choreography at that point when you're dealing with the fixed lights and everything. Yes, very, for sure. But I also think it adds another level of believability to the environment and to, to the animals themselves, because you're not showing them off in a way that I think probably people did, you know, as CG got bigger and better and more prevalent as artists, you know, we want to show off. We want to show all the, mm -hmm. the cool new tools and, and what we can do and in the best possible light. And sometimes that works, but it may not necessarily be the best way to make something feel real. So I, I think now with the evolution of CG now, I mean, it's it, next year, Jurassic Park is going to be 30 years old. And just to see the evolution of modern visual effects and how we've sort of learned right out of the gate, like how incredible Jurassic Park looked and then how we took it beyond what we, I think would probably be the best way to do it. But, and then we've learned how to pull back and, and learn from these, what's been done before and look at classical films. And I know how much like Vittorio Storaro's uh, cinematography inspired me and it ultimately made its way into Battle at Big Rocks. And I think the prologue in Dominion, which I thought like David Vickery and, and Colin Turow directing did an incredible uh, job at. Yeah, and you also designed that storyboard. Yes, that was so much fun because uh, I got another call from Colin and he was like, you know, I've got a, a written page here of, you know, the prologue and just let's talk about it and, you know, see what dinosaurs we'd like to put in there and what might we see. And I was inspired by, of course, Stanley Kubrick's opening to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is just 17 minutes of 
like no music, nothing, no dialogue, no narration, just these hominids, you know, trying to survive in their environment. And I knew 17 minutes of no music and no narration wouldn't fly. <laughs> Not with today's audience, but I think it ultimately ended up being four minutes. I don't know if it's actually going to be a part of the opening of the actual movie or if it's going to be something that's part of the DVD or Blu-ray. But it was so much fun to do because that's all the Earth was for the better part of 150 million years was just absolute silence. No music, no car horns, no people <laughs> shouting, just the sound of nature and what would you hear? And so that's why when the sequence starts, you hear the animals before you see them. And it was fascinating because it was filmed on the island called Socotra, which is in the Indian Ocean. It's off the coast of Yemen. And the second unit photography was filmed by an Egyptian film crew. And why they picked Socotra is because there are these trees on Socotra that are called dragon blood trees. And if you cut them, like literally the sap is blood red. But the shape of them is, is primordial. Just it, the whole environment looks primordial. So I did a lot of <laughs> like uh, Google footage search of uh, like all these pictures of Socotra and then incorporated those environments into my storyboards. And boy, oh boy, that second unit Egyptian film crew did an incredible job of like, I can't imagine how early they must have had to get up to capture like these early morning hour shots because I wanted everything to, to sort of be like as the sun came up, like, you know, what is sort of a day in the life of prehistoric Cretaceous animals and yeah. Colin was was very much on board with it and then you know encouraged it and took over with the directing of it and it was so exciting to see it come together. Yeah. You know, a lot of times, same thing, like you don't aren't too presentational. Sometimes there's a, just a very gentle pan of the camera left to right, showing like the ceratopsian herd, like just going through the river and migrating on to another place. But those Background plates are taken from the island of Socotra. So it's it's a really beautiful environment. Most paleontologists, nothing drives them more nuts than seeing grass with dinosaurs because grass <laughs> didn't show up until many millions of years after the dinosaurs yeah. were gone. So um, Bonus points for inaccuracy if you have the dinosaurs eating the grass. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, it just would have been a sea of ferns or um, with coniferous trees. Yeah, I mean, they made, a, I think in the documentary, they talked about how they made a point of like finding these fields in Argentina that just did not have any grass in them, but did have plants. And then they would add stuff in back in. So like the thought uh, for detail in that is even more impressive. But if I think like the Jurassic movies hold a special distinction and that, you know, as much as possible, we're trying to be historically accurate. But at the end of the day, it's, it's a movie to entertain you in the same way, like the Great White Shark isn't going to exactly move and do the things that Bruce the Shark did in Jaws, but it's going to be exciting and entertaining and ultimately an inroad to further study. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because we we often critique like, oh, you know, the dinosaurs in movies are always like way too aggressive. They're always attacking each other and stuff. But if you make it a 90 minute Hollywood movie and it's realist, super realistic animals, it's going to be very boring. It's going to be like going to the zoo and just watching animals sit there and not doing anything. <laughs> I remember I would, when I was in, I lived in Phoenix and I worked at Fox Animation and I would go to the Phoenix Zoo and on the weekends to draw the animals. And invariably I would be lazy and I wouldn't get to the zoo until like two in the afternoon when it was a hundred degrees. And every drawing in my sketchbook of the lions was them lying down. 
I don't think I had one drawing of, of a lion that was upright, you know, because they were all like resting in, in uh, that in, like in oppressive heat. So, yeah. uh, but when a lion decides that it's going to attack and kill something, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So it's trying to get those moments and make them come alive on the big screen. I'm just imagining a, an alternate version of the original Jurassic Park where they're in the car and they just don't see any of the animals because they're all just like laying down in the woods. And like, <laughs> Taking a nap. Just yeah. super bored. They get to the end and they're like, well, this park's a bust because all the animals are boring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we should talk a little bit about your artwork because you have a lot of it on your website, right? Yes, absolutely. You know, any of the artwork that I do, I it's my own. So I'm trying to make sure not to do, to do any designs that are in the Jurassic Park style. I think there's a typical like Jurassic Park T-Rex, for example, has a very specific style as far as like the angled brows to make it look a little bit more stern and the width of the head and so forth. I even like they, they shaved back the pubic bone, which would should be hanging a lot lower. They just they have that on the Raptors, but they don't have it on the Rex. Just I just think it probably visually was confusing or didn't look right. So they just got rid of it. But as much as possible, I have a skeleton collection where I'm I'm looking at the bones and trying to understand the underlying structure of the animals and see what kind of poses they could and could not get into. So there's a feeling of uh, volume to the drawings and a feeling that you could, you know, like what's on the other side of the dinosaur when you're drawing it. A lot of that came from like studying under Don Bluth, who studied under the nine old men. And it was really, it was invaluable to like learn from him as far as, you know, like if a line comes up to a line that, you know, defines the waist of a character or a scar or something like, you know, imagine that line running Where would that line go over and beyond around that corner? What the viewer doesn't see. Don't have the line just come up and meet the line. Have the line curve around to give it a feeling of dimension. And as much as possible, I try and uh, put that into my artwork as well. That's a really cool idea. Yeah, I definitely have never done that. So, (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and I didn't either. And it was the sort of thing that, you know, you've been to art school at university. And then I had uh, been to Sheridan College and studying classical animation. And then, you know, you work with one of the best animators who's ever lived. And he's just like, oh, here's a little thing I learned from Milk Call. And you're like, okay. (laughs) You know, who's like, I was considered Milk Call, like the best draftsman who ever lived. So it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll listen to that advice. Do you have any advice for people who might be beginning their career in animation or looking to break into the industry? Uh, To break into the industry, there's a company that my friend started, Sean Kelly, along with Carlos Baena and Bobby Kelly. I I think they started a a company called animationmentor.com. And I did a bunch of lectures in the lecture series for Animation Mentor. And, you know, I was happy to help them out and help start them out. And what was amazing was just seeing this like small company, like turn into this burgeoning school of like churning out incredible animators. And one of the animators that I got to meet was this uh, gentleman from Nigeria named Sidney Combo. And he came over to me at a a film festival in Italy. And he's like, are you Glenn McIntosh? And I said, yeah. And he said like, I learned animation from you by (laughs) animationmentor.com. And Sidney was the uh, animation supervisor for the and battle of Avengers Endgame. Oh, wow. Which was absolutely stunning, you know? And now he's at Weta supervising a bunch of other uh, Marvel projects. And so to be able to, you know, help and inspire all of the incredible artists that are coming up was very rewarding. Yeah. Like when I went to Sheridan, I mean, and Sheridan is still an amazing school that teaches, you know, the, uh, the art of filmmaking and the art of animation. And they teach CG animation now. The animation mentor is a little bit more animation specific. 
in the sense that you got a comprehensive study of all of film at Sheridan, meaning you studied editing, you studied uh, sound, sound breakdown, layout, uh, storyboarding, film theory, film history, you know, and, you know, which was all incredibly valuable. And I had studied a lot of film history at University of Calgary as well, which was invaluable. But I think as far as like, if you wanted to specialize in just character animation, animationmentor.com teaches you like whether you want to do something like broad and cartoony or subtle and realistic. If you want to do something that's like an animal, if you want to do something that's a human, if you want to do, uh, you know, all, all the different varieties of, of animation, like they have that, uh, they have those models available to you to, to work with with that school. So it, I think they've done a fantastic job in, you know, creating so many artists that are now in the industry. So if, if anyone's interested in that, I would encourage them to go to that website. Awesome. That's super cool. I don't know how I'm trying to think of when I did those lectures, but it would be me looking much younger and thinner. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the talks I did was on storyboard composition, like how to lead the audience's eye, how to, you know, build up the audience's expectations or or subvert the audience's expectations to make them see something that ultimately doesn't does or doesn't happen. And then also, I think I did a lecture on uh, bird flight, like how like the figure eights that the tip of a, of a bird's wing does, and yeah, it's complicated stuff like that. Yeah, but it's, I think birds are some of the most fun characters to animate because they can do so many different things. Yeah, but and also in that respect, like if you have a character like a dragon, it's really fun to animate because it's part reptile, part crocodile, part mm-hmm. lizard, part bird, part bat. You know, there's a lot of things that you can incorporate into the movements. And then how smart is it? Is it like Smaug? Can it talk or can it, you know, how can it gesture like a human? You know, there's all sorts of fun things you can put into the, into those uh, fantasy creatures, which is a lot of fun. I do love dragons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Me too. Well, going back to Dominion, are there any dinosaurs you're looking forward to seeing or any speculations that you would want to share or can share based on the the like the extended trailer that i saw i can't wait to see the feathered raptors just because i've always wanted to see that and i think when they initially you know reported that raptors had feathers there was this reaction from a lot of dinosaur enthusiasts like oh man i don't want to think of dinosaurs as being just like big (laughs) birds but i i think that's a fantastic opportunity to make them even scarier because if you saw, you know, something that was 12 feet long and, you know, six feet tall and had just stunning, you know, iridescent plumage like a peacock, and all of a sudden it starts running at you at 50 miles an hour with these six foot long sides that could, you know, create a 180 degree slice in you that could rip you completely open. I mean, it's a Bengal tiger wouldn't last three seconds against a, a full-sized uh, Utah raptor. And and so um, I'm encouraged by one of the scenes I saw where it looked like a feathered uh, raptor. I think they're calling it the pyroraptor. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. I, and so that I'm really excited to see because Colin and his team sort of like taking what we now know about dinosaurs and what we've learned in the 30 years since Jurassic Park and, and bringing it into the modern age and still making it uh, cinematically dynamic and terrifying as well as beautiful. Yeah. I th- I th- like, like a tiger is a beautiful animal, but it's, it's also terrifying, you know, <laughs> like a cassowary, yeah, like with it's like blue and red head is it's a gorgeous bird, but they are deadly. If you've ever seen the close up of the claws of a cassowary, their inside claw is almost like a raptor's. It's, it's extended. 
and could cut you right open. They're they're deadly birds. <laughs> so, but the um, I remember asking Jack Horner on set in New Orleans. I said, "Are there any birds existing on planet Earth today that have the raised raptor claw similar to what?" And I didn't even finish my my question, and and Jack Horner just replied, "Red-legged Sariyama from South America." <laughs> <laughs> So if you look up a red-legged Sariyama, they are the birds that will grab a, a snake and absolutely claw it to death with their feet. Oh, man. Oh, my God. They are beautiful birds, but they're also vicious. Stay far away. Admire from a distance. Admire, admire from a distance. I don't think they could hurt a human, but boy, if you were a snake, you'd be over in about two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've got some exciting stuff in the works, like... Right now you're working with the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, Alberta to get your collection display there as an exhibit. Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. They were gracious and nice enough to call me and say, we, we'd love to display some of your artwork in conjunction with the release of uh, Dominion. So I'm, I'm currently in um, working on getting them the artwork that will sort of go along the hallway that leads to sort of the main hall between one of the, like two of the areas of the Royal Tyrrell. And it's a great honor because I consider the Royal Terrell to be like one of the most comprehensive dinosaur museums in the world. And uh, I've had the opportunity to lecture there a few times and uh, they've been so gracious with their time and, and with me. And so to be able to have my artwork presented there is, uh, is a real honor. And, and also because I kind of grew up near there. I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and uh, Drumheller is maybe a hundred miles away. Mm -hmm. And uh, to think that you know, 65 million years ago in that exact area, there was an inland sea that <laughs> bisected North America. And that's where you, why you get so many amazing fossils like Turl. That's like, he found the first Albertosaurus skeleton in Horseshoe Canyon, which is maybe 20 or 30 miles from the, the Royal Terrell Museum. And that's why, it, you know, it's named after the province of Alberta. So it's sort of a cousin earlier cousin of uh, the T-Rex. It's a little bit smaller, but one of my pieces of artwork is actually an homage to the logo of the uh, Royal Terrell Museum, which is a running Albertosaurus. Nice. Yeah. So I think the goal is to have around 25 to 30 pieces in the hallway leading to the main dinosaur hall. And there'll be like descriptions that'll go with each piece uh, showing which dinosaurs are on display and, and so forth. So fingers crossed it all comes together. But yeah, really awesome of them to be able to to like to reach out to me for that because it's a real honor. Yeah, that's awesome. amazing. For our listeners, we've pre-recorded this interview. So by the time it airs, you can probably see the exhibit at the <laughs> I museum. Hope, I hope so. <laughs> It'll be running through summer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. What's fun is that with a lot of my artwork, I try and tell a little bit of a story where it's sort of like the um, you know, the triceratops defending the baby from the big T-Rex, just because typically predators will Unfortunately, we'll go for babies. It's much easier for them, an easier meal for them. And so when you see something like that with lions, you want, you know, just just looking at predators and trying to sort of like take advantage of that. And like, what can we learn from that and incorporate that into my paleo art? I, I try and do that as much as possible. Like tell a little bit of a story so it's not just a dinosaur sitting there or, or looking around, but sort of like, uh, uh oh, like what's going to happen next? You know, like what happened yeah. in the moment before this moment and what's going to happen in the moment after that. That's uh, I like doing that in a lot of my artwork as well. Awesome. And if people want to see all that artwork, artofglennmackintosh.com is the place to go. And you also, a lot of the artwork on there or all of the artwork on there is for sale? Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. 
what should someone do if they find a piece of artwork on there and they are interested in buying it? There's a uh, contact directory on the website. So feel free to send me an email and inquire about like which piece you're interested in. And I can quote you a price. And then if you're interested, we can make that happen and I'll mail it out to you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing all your knowledge about the Jurassic Park franchise, but also your own work. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of your, your podcast and, you know, wish you all the best for this year, which I think is going to be a huge year for dinosaurs, but uh, all the years to come as well. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks again, Glenn, for the great interview. We're really looking forward to seeing Jurassic World Dominion. And if that five minute segment made it into the beginning of the movie or if it's only in that trailer. Mm-hmm. I hope it's in the movie. And when we get back from our break, we'll be talking about Dinosaur of the Day, Scorpios Rex. But real quick, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Scorpios Rex, which is a hybrid dinosaur in Jurassic World, as we mentioned. And with Jurassic World Dominion coming up, we felt we wanted to cover all of the dinosaurs that are in Jurassic World and Jurassic Park. When you say it's in Jurassic World, was it in the first Jurassic World? I thought that was Indominus Rex. So we don't actually see Scorpios Rex until Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Oh, that's where I know it from. But the reason I say Jurassic World is because technically it was around before the events of Camp Cretaceous. 
Ooh, and Camp Cretaceous was like basically at the same time as Jurassic World, at least the first season. Yes, so Scorpios Rex was the first hybrid dinosaur that Henry Wu made, even before Indominus Rex and Indoraptor. And it took a lot of tries, which makes sense when you're making a hybrid dinosaur. (laughs) Again, this is all fiction. Yes. (laughs) And Scorpios Rex looked very hybrid. Its design and some of its poses are similar to the human dinosaur hybrids proposed for Jurassic Park 4. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was before. It was after Jurassic Park 3. They were planning on making Jurassic Park 4, which had a whole bunch of hybrids, right? But then they ended up scrapping that, and it wasn't until many years later, and they totally threw that away and came up with Jurassic World. Yep, and then you got Indominus Rex and Indoraptor. Now, Scorpio's Rex is meant to be uglier since it's the first one, and then Indoraptor looks the sleekest because they've kind of perfected how they were making their hybrid dinosaurs. Interesting. I thought Scorpius Rex looked a lot more like the Indoraptor than it did like Indominus Rex. Maybe it's just the color, though, because it was a darker one, not that weird white color. Could be. I think if you're looking at the proportions, though, it looks weirder. Like it's designed to have these long arms, a thinner than usual torso, and the quills, and the movements are meant to be zombie-like, like it's not totally in control of its movement. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty all over the place. So this hybrid dinosaur was medium-sized. It was a theropod, about 26 feet or 8 meters long. It was bipedal, but it could walk on all fours. And it's smaller than Indominus Rex, but bigger than Indoraptor. It had red eyes and slit pupils, as well as an overbite and jagged, uneven teeth. Yeah, it gives it more of a pseudo-Sukian or crocodilian-like look. And I guess that makes it more monstrous. Yeah. Or the underbite look. Its eyes were also high up on its face. It was dark gray or dirt brown in color. It had charcoal black scales, and it had short, powerful jaws and long, powerful arms, as well as flexible shoulder joints and quill-like spines on its head. And it had venomous spines on its elbow, neck, and tail. That comes from the scorpionfish DNA, and it could use those spines like a porcupine, where the spines get stuck in flesh. Yeah. Yeah, that really made me think it was more advanced and fancier. They are just trying stuff out. (laughs) Maybe they decided that was a bad adaptation (laughs) to have the thing you're trying to, like, control be poisonous to you. It also had opposable thumbs and talons that could grasp, as well as a somewhat prehensile tail. It had infrared vision, as well as short spurs that grew out of the back of its heels— But poor Scorpius Rex, or maybe not so poor Scorpius Rex, it was considered to be too ugly to be seen by the public, which is why we don't see it until Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Mm. And its behavior ranged from calm to very aggressive and unpredictable. It had labored breathing, and it seems to always be in pain. Oh, geez, I didn't notice that. But that's why it's probably ruthless and violent. It was a fast runner, it could run faster than Gallimimus, and it's able to climb. And it attacked by slashing, kicking, pouncing, biting, screeching, and with its quills. Lots of different ways to attack. Which is maybe not what you want in a theme park. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Scorpius Rex easily takes down a Ceratosaurus and kills other dinosaurs, including a Brachiosaurus. Oh no. The name Scorpius Rex means Scorpion King. It's named for the Scorpion Fish which is bottom-dwelling venomous fish. But Scorpios Rex also had claws like Velociraptor and horns and scales like Carnotaurus. 
Yeah, and like really long arms. They always do that. They did the same thing with Indominus Rex and Indoraptor where they had like, they have to have huge arms and claws as well as big sharp teeth and everything. It's like all the <laughs> all the things that are threatening. Yeah. You might also know Scorpius Rex by its other name, E750. There was a lot of speculation when Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous first came out and the season hadn't dropped with it yet. Like, what is this E750 going to look like? Yeah, they showed just like a frozen cryo chamber type looking thing Mm -hmm. with that alphanumeric on it. And it could survive for long periods of time in below freezing water, possibly because of its tree frog genes. (laughs) Of course, the frog. It's always the frog DNA. Yeah. Ascorbius rex matures in four months, so very quickly. And it attacks its own offspring. It's been described as a failed experiment. That's another thing that's tricky if you're trying to, like, raise a population for a zoo, if they're attacking all their own children. Mm-hmm. There are two individuals of Scorpius Rex. Only one that was created by Henry Wu, and it reproduced asexually. That's how it got the second individual, and that that's apparently due to its frog DNA. <laughs> oh, again, the frog DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Now, of course, we know Scorpius Rex was held frozen in InGen's secret tunnels until it escaped in Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous. Wu was attacked once and then ordered to kill the Scorpius Rex. The staff saved him with the anti-venom that he made. But instead of killing Scorpius Rex, he put it in a cryonic stasis. And not many people knew of its existence. Then there was a power overload and damage to the electrical grid after the events of Jurassic World that eventually led to Scorpius Rex thawing out and escaping in Season 3 of Camp Cretaceous. This caused the other dinosaurs on the island to change their behaviors and become more aggressive. As Scorpius Rex attacks the kids, of course, in Camp Cretaceous and only stops when it gets distracted by fire from a lightning strike. And it hurts... The character Sammy with its quills and Yasmina has to run to the lab to get the antidote. Scorpius Rex also tries to attack Bumpy. Oh. But the herd of ankylosaurs defends her and they have a thick enough armor that they're okay. Yeah. Yeah, ankylosaurs. (laughs) And Scorpius Rex, of course, they also attack each other. And Blue ends up saving Darius and Ben from both Scorpius Rexes. And then the Scorpius Rexes are crushed and killed, presumably killed, when the visitor center collapses on top of them. The campers also destroy Wu's laptop, so Scorpius Rex shouldn't be able to be recreated. Unless it's backed up. Yeah. They got a zip disk. Uh, Yeah, you never know (laughs) in Jurassic World what's going to happen. It's true. Now, Scorpius Rex, it's available as an action figure, and it can chomp and roar and attack with its tail and slash with its claws. And again... It is a fictitious dinosaur. Yes. I feel like I have to reiterate that. Right. A hybrid fictitious dinosaur in Jurassic World. And our fun fact of the day is that dinosaurs can disable tracking devices. Like we've seen in Jurassic World? Yes. which, Which disabling of tracking devices are you talking about? Think about the Indominus Rex, but she just took it out. Yes. That's the only one I could think of, too. But I was wondering if you were thinking of a different one that I didn't remember. (laughs) So in real life, researchers in Australia recently launched a new project to track magpies. Hmm. And as a quick aside, Australian magpies aren't closely related to European magpies. Like most birds, they are both passerines, a.k.a. songbirds. 
And European magpies are corvids, the group of birds that includes crows, ravens, and jays. They're well known as some of the most intelligent birds. And because European magpies are corvids, a lot of times people mistakenly think that Australian magpies are also corvids. And Australian magpies are very intelligent, so you can see why you might make that confusion. And it's weird that they're both called magpies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) One group is in the corvid family and the other isn't. But Australian magpies are actually in a group called Artemids, and they are another really cool group of birds. It includes butcher birds, which are those birds that impale prey on thorns or barbed wire. It also includes currawongs, which look a lot like Australian magpies, but they're a little more black in coloration. They have less white on them. But sometimes they form long-term friendly relationships with humans rather than swooping at them and biting people like magpies do. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah, like the nicer cousin of the magpie. That's how I look at them at least. And then there's one last Artemid, the wood swallows, which are these really cute little puffballs that like to cuddle up together in large groups on branches and things. And it's incredibly adorable. Oh, you started from the most intense ones to the cutest cuddly ones, I see. (laughs) Well, wood swallows are so adorable. They might be my new favorite bird. They're so (laughs) cute. So some populations of Australian magpies are threatened by chicks dying in heat waves and adults being killed by cats. Since magpies mostly forage on the ground, they're pretty susceptible to invasive species like cats coming after them. Cats kill a lot of birds. They really do. Yeah, keep cats indoors if you have cats. But researchers wanted to track magpies to learn more about them and hopefully to help protect them. Unfortunately, existing trackers are pretty big because they're meant for tracking larger birds. There are a lot of endangered larger birds that we try to track. You know, like we've got California condors, there's albatross, there's all these big birds. And so there's more room for a larger tracker on them. And those birds also happen to be, in general, more solitary than magpies. So these researchers came up with a clever, quote unquote, backpack to track the magpies. It actually sort of has a front pack and a backpack and then straps that go around the wings, basically. It looks like it would be relatively comfortable. It doesn't disrupt any of their neck or arm or leg movements at all. And it is very small. It weighs less than one gram total. So I think it's a pretty impressive piece of engineering. On top of that, they trained the magpies to come to a feeder, a little platform that was outfitted with some really cool technology where it could charge the backpack while downloading the data from it wirelessly. So all the bird knew was it was landing there and eating, and then it was getting all this information and recharging it, which (laughs) you have to do because you can't put much of a battery in a one gram Mm -hmm. (laughs) device. And birds have to eat frequently, so that works. Yep. So they put trackers on five magpies, but unfortunately, the magpies really didn't like their backpacks. And quote, within 10 minutes of fitting the final tracker, we witnessed an adult female without a tracker working with her bill to try and remove the harness off a younger bird, oh, end quote. Collaborating. Yes. And by the third day, all of the birds had their trackers removed. The last to go was the dominant male's tracker. Smart. Also interesting that the dominant male, maybe he resisted for a little bit, <laughs> getting the help. Yeah, it could also be that it bothered him less or something. Yeah. Unclear. But back in the first Jurassic World, like you said, Indominus Rex removed its tracker, which 
at the time I thought was a little bit unrealistic. But now I think, oh, that wasn't really unrealistic at all. If it was bothering it at all, yeah. it might have been able to dig it out. It still seemed kind of painful because it literally had to dig it out of its flesh. Yes. Yeah. Th I don't think this was as painful because they're not sure exactly how they, at least how that adult female removed its tracker. Because like they said, they were busy outfitting all of the magpies with their little tracking backpacks. And then they noticed that this one was missing. So they don't know exactly how it got it off. But there is one very small weak spot, one and only one weak spot on the backpack. And it's the spot that's used to attach it and detach it. You know, there has to be a disconnect point. And presumably that female found that weak spot and managed to bite through it. And then it probably used that knowledge to help remove the trackers from its friends and family. Mm -hmm. Birds are smart. <laughs> I should say dinosaurs are smart. They really are. So it wouldn't be far-fetched that a non-avian dinosaur, say like Indominus rex, that removed its own tracker might figure out how to remove its own tracker and then possibly move on to removing them from their companions as well. Mm -hmm. There's also cooperative rescuing behavior with other birds where they get those sticky seeds stuck to them. And if there are too many seeds stuck to them, they can't fly anymore and other birds will come and pick those seeds off. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that they help themselves and then help the other ones. But that's just one possible way it could they happen. They just tend to work together and spread the knowledge. Some birds. It's Some actually birds. very rare. I think this is the only only the second case known other than those seeds okay. of something like that happening. And presumably, they're sort of assuming that this is a rescuing behavior, that they see that backpack on them as some sort of threat that needs to be removed quickly. I could see that. Now, in Dominion, since the dinosaurs are all over the world, there's probably not too many of them are, that are tracked. I don't know, but I, c I could see it that the ones that were sold at auction for a really high price might yeah. have had trackers in them. And then maybe some of them were able to remove the trackers somehow. Yeah, yeah it could. It's this random plot point that probably won't happen. But <laughs> if it does happen in the movie, you could know that it's not that unrealistic. We'll have to watch out for it. Mm -hmm. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you so much for listening. If you want even more dinosaur news, we like to call it dinosaur goodness, then head over to our website, inodino.com, and you can sign up for our email newsletter. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.